0: The Moth is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations.
1: We all have a story to tell, and the Moth's education program is looking to help young people tell their stories. High school students can develop their storytelling skills with the Moth Summer Story Lab. Join us for a free one week long workshop where you'll learn the art and craft of sharing your own story. From brainstorming to that final mic drop moment, we've got you covered. Plus, you'll make new friends, build skills that shine in school and beyond, and have a blast along the way. Whether it's at the family dinner table or a college essay starter, your story matters. Virtual and in-person options are available to fit your style. Workshops begin in August. Don't miss out. Sign up now and learn more today at themoth.org forward slash storylab. Apply by June 23rd. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson. In this hour, we'll hear stories of looking for home. The setting for these homes? A repossessed house, a middle school science class, a concert, a silent retreat. Our first story takes place in Portland, where we partner with Oregon Public Broadcasting. For people of a certain age who grew up in Portland going to public schools, sixth grade outdoor camp will be familiar. The storyteller is Vin Chambry. Here he is, live at the Moth.
2: When I was a kid, I never cried. I never had time to. I was always put in adult situations. Like the time when I was 12, my mother abruptly woke us up in the middle of the night, tears streaming down her face, her mouth filled with blood from being punched repeatedly. We knew that it was time to flee from him. And from that day on, we were homeless and on the streets. But I was the man in charge. My four-year-old sister and I would wait down the street in a park while my mother would scope out the shelters. But those places always had social workers and police at those places, which meant we might get taken away from her. So most of the time, we'd sleep under a tree in a park. Living under trees was only hard for the first couple of weeks. I mean, it was early fall, so it wasn't too cold yet. And at that time of year, all we really needed was a layer of cardboard underneath us, a blanket we all shared, and plastic on top of it. And we had a routine all worked out. Showers at the local swimming pool, free breakfast at school, then we'd walk around with the shopping cart until dark. And we knew exactly when the police would patrol the parks, and when they were done with their rounds, we could safely crawl into the tree without being seen. It was all right until we found the tree, this beautiful 50-foot pine tree. Once you settle yourself in near the trunk, you are immediately hidden by its branches. The tree itself becomes a wonderland of a home. The dirt is smoothed over by all the Portland rain. It felt good, good enough to relax a little and sometimes sleep. I lay back and look up through the branches of this tree that I call home. I look at my mom and sister, amazed at how peaceful they can sleep here. Not a care in the world when their eyes are closed. I admired it, imagining how wonderful their dreams must be. But me, I had to protect them no matter what, as the only man in the tree it's my duty. So I never dreamed. But tonight, when I watch over them, I think about with mixed emotions what I'm about to embark on next week with all of the six, the Portland Public School sixth graders. Outdoor school. A five day environmental school at a sleepaway camp in the forest. We've been hearing about it since kindergarten. No classrooms, just outdoor learning around fires and s'mores for a whole week. But best of all, I get to have my own bed with clean sheets and a pillow. The day I leave for outdoor school is hard on me. I tell my mom, now look, if you're gonna walk me to the bus, you have got to leave our shopping cart with all of our stuff behind the market so nobody sees us. She agreed. And my little sisters hold my backpack, which is as big as she is, she's always trying to help. I give my mom and sister a big hug and I hop on the bus. The conversation on the bus with the other sixth graders is around who will be the first to cry of homesickness. And they say that at the end, everybody cries because you're so sad that it's over. Cry? What for? This is an opportunity of a lifetime a bed for a week, clean sheets, hot food at every meal, nothing to cry about here. We get there and we are bombarded by cool 16-year-old counselors who actually wanted to hang out with us. They had been waiting here. They gave us a necklace made out of a slice of a tree trunk with our names on it. And we all had the opportunity to run and jump in the river if we wanted to. What? I mean, I really wanted to. All the kids just ran and did it without even worrying about their clothes. I only had two pairs of pants and two pairs of underwear and no quarters for the laundromat. Matter of fact, I don't even know if they had a laundromat. So I went to the counselor and I asked him. He told me that they would wash and dry my clothes for me and I didn't have to worry about it and it was okay to run and jump in the river. I felt taken care of. At outdoor school, I didn't have a care in the world. As the week goes on, I forgot about my family and the struggles we face. I forgot about the struggles they're probably facing right now. I like not thinking about how hard everything is. For the first moment in my life, I felt like a kid. The high point of outdoor school was the competitive game of tug of war. Now, 10 of us would represent our school to push as hard as we can against the other rival middle schools. I knew that this was my opportunity. The The teacher came up to us and said, all right, kids, raise your hand if you want to go on the front line and push as hard as you can. Nobody raised their hand, so I did. She came up to me and she said, go ahead, you can push as hard as you can. I approached the tape to get ready to walk in and take my position. I look down at my shoes. <sighs> These are my only pair of shoes. And they're actually Nikes, which gives me just enough credibility at school so the kids don't know I'm homeless. And now they're going to get really dirty, and I'm going to have to wear them home like that. No, 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 you don't get it. They're patent leather, white and red, Deon Sander Nikes that I got as a gift from a girl at school whose dad worked for Nike. And I know that next week the kids are going to see my dirty shoes and know that my family has no money. But this opportunity is too great for me to worry about adult things like trying to find a place to wash and dry my shoes. I don't hesitate for long. I grab that rope in my hands. My feet begin to sink in the mud, giving me the proper leverage I need to pull for my team. Before the whistle blows, I look in the eyes of the rival school and they're taunting me, saying that I'm not strong enough and blowing kisses at me. I tilt my head up to the sky, and I thank whoever gave me this gift to just be a kid. The whistle blows, I pull with all my might from my team. I hear grunting and screaming, and suddenly it's over, and we won. All the kids are running towards me, picking me up in the air, telling me that I was strong, that I belong, that I was strong. The last night of outdoor school, we sat around listening to counselors tell stories like they do. And one story I will never forget is a story long ago about how all the animals seek shelter from the worst of the storm. Some of them went into the cliffs and some of them went into the caves, but in the end, the mice were left with nowhere to go. So what they did is they seeked shelter in the mighty pine trees. and till this day, if you look at a pine cone, you can still see what looks like their tail sticking out from the bottom. Hearing that story, I started to cry. At this point, I can tell that all the kids have noticed that I'm crying and they're all whispering, but in that moment, I do not care. I am too overwhelmed with emotion to be embarrassed. I look around at this wonderful place and my new friends, but I can't help think that I've deserted my family in archery. I deserted them this whole time and I just realized it. My tears were coming from a place of gratitude from this awesome week, but from the realization that my family needs me. And I'm the man in charge. I'm supposed to push the shopping cart with all our stuff. I'm supposed to find the cardboard for us to sleep on. I'm supposed to protect my mom and sister. There's a storm coming and I wasn't there to stay awake. But for five whole days, I got to be a kid. They said at the end of outdoor school, everybody cries. And in the end, I did too. Thank you.
1: That was Vin Shambly. The giant pine tree, Vin's family tree, still stands in Grant Park in downtown Portland. To see a picture of Vin posing with the tree and his two daughters, visit themoth.org. Vin, his mom and sister, eventually found a home with a roof and four walls, and Vin went on to get a degree in musical theater. He's appeared on Broadway and in several national tours. And when he's not on stage himself, he writes and directs plays and choreographs. He's also the director for a nonprofit called Brother to Brother, which helps men of color stay in college no matter what. To this day, Vin still loves the smell of pine cones.
3: Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX.
0: Support for the Moth comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is a lot of things. Odoo is an award winning management software. Odoo is total control of your entire company in one place. Odoo is a suite of fully integrated applications for CRM, accounting, sales. HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. Basically, Odoo is what your business needs to succeed. So, if you're ready to get more done in less time, visit odoo.com/moth. That's o-d-o-o dot moth Odoo business management made simple.
1: This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. We're sharing stories of home and family. Our next story is by Lauren Weidman. For many years, Lauren was one of the hosts of the Los Angeles Moth Story Slam. Here's Lauren, live in Anaheim, California. The theme was Between Worlds.
4: So I'm adopted and I met my um, birth mother um, when I was 19 years old and my adopted mother was the one who did the search um, and she did the search uh, purely based on the fact that I just, I was, it wasn't a big drama around it. I just was always curious, like, I just want to know what my, maybe what my birth mother looked like and maybe could I get a picture. And then my, my adopted mother was, um, I didn't call her adopted, I was like, adopted mama, do you think, you no. Know, but my <laughs> adopted mother was really into murder. She wrote and um, obsessed with this, it's a detective show. And so she um, went undercover or pretended to. Anyway, so she found, uh, and she found my uh, birth mother. And uh, Diane was her name, and so uh, we so it was happening. We were going to have a reunion, uh, and it was the two of us. My my my, my mother and I were on the, this plane flying to go visit Diane for the first time, and on the plane there, I was I was I mean I was obviously was, you know I was nervous and I was excited and the stakes are high. I mean I got that. And so but my my main concern was that that there was going to be some big big dramatic. Scene at the airport, like there was going to be some like ugh, I just my whole my whole life of being adopted. I all I did was just do a bunch of shtick around being adopted. It was always like my when I was in third grade when we come back from summer break and the teacher would be like, "What'd you do over the summer break?" I'd be like, "I'm adopted." <laughs> <laughs> it was for no reason. And then the idea that there was going to be something super like dramatic or like some kind of Oprah moment of like and I'm like and I'm like, if she ends up being if Diane is if she's if there's any sobbing or Sort of, you know, like I made a stuffed animal look like you. I held it. Every, you know, like oh, I don't want any of that weird, or I don't, you know, calling me baby or something. Oh, just none of that, and too over the top. So, um, and that, but and also, I didn't have any. I, I had a good family. Like I liked my, I liked my adopted family just fine. I wasn't looking to trade them in so much. But so I get off the plane and I, I see her, and um, my God, she, it couldn't, it couldn't be any better. She was exactly. She was better than I could have hoped for. Because I, I, first, her, her and my mom have their little, they do have like a little moment of like my mother's like, thank you for our baby. And I'm like, she's never been that grateful, I swear. Anyway, um, And so they have a little moment with each other and they're crying and hugging each other. And then Diane looks at me and I can tell that she just sensed that I couldn't, um, I, wasn't, I don't roll like that. I don't roll with all that hug, hug. I wasn't. And then I didn't want that. And, and she saw me and then she just goes, she's like, that's okay. She goes, we got a lot of time to catch up. Uh, and she's like, and I knew we'd find each other, let's go get a burrito, you know, and that was it. She gave me the like squeeze, and I was like, ah, my people, that's perfect. I don't have to deal with everything. And and I couldn't have, I, I'm telling you, I didn't really, I didn't think I wanted or needed anything from what I would meet in a birth mother, but Diane was fantastic. Like, she she was this, she was, everybody liked her. Like, uh, it, over the years, and I went to go see her a lot. I tried to spend as much time with her as I could after I met her, and I, at one point, I even tried to live in the same city as her, and she was a probation officer, you know, she's, everybody loves her, you know, she and she loves her murderers, and they love her, you know, that's, <laughs> and they, and she told great stories. She always had wonderful, I loved hearing her stories, and I loved how she just treated humanity. Diane could talk to anybody, and it was never awkward or overly sort of I was from the Midwest and I was used to you know people just sort of hello <laughs> like not really actually <laughs> connecting so much you could roll up like a headless uh, torso on a gurney and, and Diane could have like a heart to heart and really get to know them <laughs> like she just and, and the messiness of humanity didn't scare her which I love that the two of us were constantly wanting to tell the story of our reunion to to you know we were always like you told the guy at the gas station I get to do the guy at the the, the Rite Aid okay I get to do it this time and when she, when she would tell the story to people she was never overly precious about it and 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 she would tell them about how she's like well listen so I, I so I I put the baby in the garbage can and God dang it she got that lid off and then she found me and I was like ah, oh, it's fantastic um, and people and if they, and the people were mortified that was even better I loved all of that. So I... 20 years later, or you know, this is fast forward 20, 20 years, and I have a baby of my own. Anyway, I'm so, uh, so okay. Um, so I have a baby, and uh, I needs. I wanted one of my moms, one of my moms, to come help me afterwards at home for the first week, and I, and I asked adopted mama, um, but she couldn't do it. She hurt her knee, and so then I asked uh, Diane to do it, and Diane said she could. She's gonna be the perfect person for me. You know, when I'm trying to handle like a newborn, and she doesn't have all that stuff. Around the um, the birth, which was amazing as, as well, she had because she had told me this story many times about how. Um, when I was born that it actually was it was fairly positive the, the whole thing as those things go because her family was really supportive and uh, she was at this unwed mother's home and she liked the unwed mothers home and all the other birth mothers are really cool and they crochet things and and they uh, did, she she liked she had a teacher at her high school because she was 15 she had a teacher who would bring her homework so she could keep up with the rest of her class and she had to graduate on time and then uh, when Diane would talk about uh, the actual birth of when I was born she was like you know what I I don't really remember it. I was really drugged up. And I just remember that I was pretty much out dancing a week later. I mean, she's like, I'm telling you, I had haircuts that are more stressful. It's really not that big of a thing. <laughs> and which, you know, so it was, I was, I'm not really concerned about her, you know, having some like, you know, bell you know, when she sees Leo. Leo there's the baby. So I'm, I'm, I get home after, uh, from the hospital. And uh, Diane uh, arrives. My, my husband picks her up from the airport. And she walks in. And the first thing she says... Uh, is first of all, she walks right over to, to, to Leo and um feels like screams in his face, like full like bah! from the diaphragm, screams in his face. She's like, I'm Bubs, I'm Bubs, I'm your Bubs, okay? Hi, nice to meet you, I'm Bubs. And I was like, Jesus, when is she so loud? And and she decided on the airplane that her, her grandma name was gonna be Bubs off the wire, because it's her favorite character from the wire, <laughs> and that she wanted him to call that. Um, and uh, for some reason, I, it made me, uh, I got teary, for which surprised me, because, well, I, I was upset because I'd wanted her to have just like a tiny moment, I guess, of just sort of like, oh, wow, a baby, or, you know, like, oh, there he is, or just do something. I mean, I, and then I was embarrassed that I wanted that, and I thought, well, it's hormonal, I'm sure it's hormonal, because that's, you know, everyone's sort of like, oh, get ready, you're gonna sob when you open a can of Coke, you know, whatever, so, um, then right after that, she, she puts her stuff down and she immediately takes off because she wants to know where the nearest um, uh, coffee shop is because she wants a baked good and she'll be back in like a half hour. and then But she comes back a couple hours later and it's like 6.30 p.m. and she goes to bed because the time change and the next couple days were like that. Like she wasn't around that much and I was like, where are you going? She was just like, her, her, her big thing she would do is just give a you know, thumbs up. You're doing great. You got this thing down. And then she's offered to get a baked good. And then she's a nap and then she's, you know, to bed. And uh, which was uh, bothering me a bit, and, and then I thought, well, she, I know what she's doing. She's trying to like, I'm just, she's building my confidence, I guess, up, that she's just telling me I'm doing good. That's all I need. Anyway, the third night that she was there, I'm in the, up in the middle of the night, and I'm feeding Leo, or I'm trying to feed him. And uh, out of nowhere, pretty much, I have this awful feeling. Um, I guess it's an anxiety attack or something where I suddenly, was, I was like, oh, my God. What have I done? Like, I've brought this um, this baby into the cycle of suffering. I remember thinking that sentence, which is not something I normally, that's not a, okay, I'm like, where did that come from? Or, and I was like, I've done it, though. I brought him to the cycle of suffering, and he's going to have to face my death and, and his death, and, and, and oh, my God, you know, JFK Jr. died. Everybody, plane crashes. Oh, 9-11. Oh, oh, oh. And, I was like, and it felt awful. It felt, and I, and the, and I couldn't shake the feeling. And normally, I, I can have dark thoughts, but then I can be like, oh, oh let's get a donut, like, you know, like, Dan, and, and I'm fine, but I couldn't shake it And uh, the next morning, I was still kind of shook up, and I didn't want anybody to be worried about me and worried that I wouldn't be a good mother or something if I was just like I'm seeing planes crashing and blood coming out of the walls. (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs) Um, I wanted to tell Diane about it because I knew that I could, um, I could, well, I could tell Diane anything. I mean, we are definitely super close. We always had been, and uh, and, so I, I. tell her about what happened the night before, and I ask her if she's ever had anything, should um, she, she remember after the birth of her children, she had three other kids. Um, she's like, I'm like, do you remember having that feeling ever? And she was like, ah, no, I don't think so. I don't remember anything like that, but you know, I'm not as deep as you. Well, that's, I, but I think your sister had it. You guys are kind of deep. I don't think like that. And. I thought that was so not at all how I had ever seen her. I mean, she's—I mean, she, not deep is not how I would describe her at all. Oh, I, then I felt, oh my God, she's going to leave me alone in this feeling. She's not going to help. Like you know, I'm like, throw me a line, like, and nothing. I just have to stay here. And on the way to the airport, she, I see her in the back seat, she's in the back um, with the baby, and she's eating Pringles and drinking a wine cooler, a, like a, a, a wine cooler that she had left over she bought the night before. And then she starts complaining, she feels carsick on the way to the airport. And I'm, and, and, and so I'm like, my God, this, what is wrong with this woman? I'm like, I'm like dear God, she's a mess. And she's, and how did I, I, it was the first time ever, put it this way, it was the first time ever that I was happy to say goodbye to her. And that had never happened. I could never get enough of Diane. I mean, oh my god, she was i was she was my favorite person in the world to be around. So she leaves, and um, i'm I, a year later, I was supposed to go I had plans to go back to um Indiana, where she was, where all my families were for christmas. and i uh, i I hadn't had that much contact with Diane, uh, but i uh, and i and I felt like that that maybe I had just so. Wanted her to be this person in my mind, in, in my in my desire of her to be somebody. I was blind to who she really was. I guess is what I I, I summed it up as. Um, I, I go back for Christmas, and I'm, uh, I'm I'm supposed to go visit Diane and all of her other kids and stuff. And we go to see a Paul Simon concert that was already on the roster before I got there. And there is uh, I I'm sitting next to Diane at the concert. And the kids at all, all of her other kids had bought uh, tickets. Um, they bought tickets in different places, but I, uh, Diane's ticket, she had two tickets and they were at the very, very, very back row of the theater. And so I sat next to her. Um, and I'm not really wanting to sit next to her, and I, after a year of being a mother, I've, I've just, as I said, I've gotten to a point where I'm like, wow, it's a little bit more, you have to actually be there for me. I was feeling. So I'm sitting next to her, and the, the concert is, she's going crazy, and, it's, and she's, and every single song is up, like, dancing, and like, woo-woo, and nobody else, and for some reason, it's a very somber audience, nobody's dancing, nobody's even moving, and she's losing her mind, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm like, sit down, I'm like, sit down, sit down, she's like, I don't think the wall minds, ask him, he's fine, and she's... Loving it. And uh, and then when uh, Kodachrome comes on, um, she's still... Well, I actually got up and I danced for that one because I was, I mean, that, was a, that one, I, I dare you to sit down. So I, I'm dancing with her. In the middle of Kodachrome, she leans over to me and she's like, man, I wish I wore a bra today. Ha, I wish I would have done it. And I'm like, oh, gross. And she's like, oh. So then uh, Paul plays... Paul, I call him. Paul plays um, uh, Mother and Child Reunion, which is a song I have heard so many times, but I've never heard it sitting next to my birth mother. And I, the, the the lyrics were brutal. And I, on this, this, uh, it's a mother and child, is only emotion away on this very sad and lonely day. Like all these, it was, oh, the awful, the heart run. And uh, Diane uh, grabs my hand and, and I do it for a second. Just, you know, I'm not a, Dick I was you know like that, and then I, I, but I but I took it away, and we're both like getting emotional, listening to the lyrics, and it's very intense and then and then she grabs my hand again and I'm, and I'm like, oh God,, oh, I don't want to pull it away, but she's gripping onto it and i 'm like,, oh. finally, I calm down, and it's so nice, it feels so nice so um on the, after the concert um we, we don't talk on the way home, we're very quiet um and I, I, I couldn't think of. Anything to, I couldn't think of a joke to say, and, and I know Diane felt the same way. I had this fear of thinking like, oh no, are, are we gonna end up being like, I mean, it was, it was nice, that moment of like, oh, and, like, and, and hearing that, I'm like, but now are we like the, the hand holding, you know, whatever. All right, sorry. So the next day, we're going to um, a coffee, we're gonna get coffee. In the car, Diane says to me, I wanna tell you something, Lauren, that I think maybe you needed to hear. And I, um, I think maybe um, you needed to know that you were a hard baby to give up. And I never wanted to tell you that, because I didn't want you to worry about me. I didn't want you to think it was something awful. I wanted you to know that your birth was 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 this good thing. Um, but I'm wondering if maybe I didn't do any favors by not letting you know that that it was the most heartbreaking thing that's ever happened to me, was losing you. And she goes, maybe you needed to know that. And I I could have I could have never told, never ever ever said that that was something I needed to hear. If we'd have asked me, I would have been like, no, ew, God, too much. It was. It, it was so profound and, and I, well, it did change my, my life after that. I was so uh, moved by that, but then I also got worried, like, oh no, are we to become these like, oh, like earnest sort of like, here you are again. Diane, let me tell you my feelings. And, uh, but thankfully, the last time I uh, saw her, I was picking her up at the um the, the baggage claim and she, she comes out to the car and she goes, she's like, okay, I've got, I've got to go get more baggage. I'll be right back. Oh, and this time, I mean it, ha <laughs> ha And I'm like, oh, thank God, <laughs> thank you.
1: That was Lauren Weidman. She's a writer and actor who lives in Los Angeles. Every time Lauren heads back to Indiana for a visit, she sees both of her families, sometimes all together, like at her mother's upcoming 80th birthday. Diane will be there, too. Now, Lauren sent a copy of the story you just heard to Diane to make sure she was okay with it being aired. I want to read a bit of Diane's response. Sweetie, I think it's beautiful. I'm thrilled that somebody has that much to say about me. I must admit that I didn't know at the time how useless I was when Leo was born. I don't think I knew how much to interject myself into your new life. I thought I should stay back and wash clothes and keep in the background. Oh well, we're good now, huh? I think it's great. Thank you so much for being so considerate of my feelings. Love you so much. Lauren is the author of two books, A Woman Trapped in a Woman's Body and Miss Fortune, Fresh Perspectives on Having It All from Someone Who Is Not Okay. To see a picture of Lauren with her son and Grandma Bubs, visit themoth.org. The and is only this next story is by Michelle Oberholzer. She told it in 2015 at our Detroit Story Slam, where we partner with public radio station WDET. Here's Michelle.
5: When I moved to Detroit, I decided to turn myself into a writer. And um, the beautiful thing about being a writer is that all you have to do is to write, and then you are it. Which is great for me because I studied engineering, and that's like the best way to get through college without writing a word. So um, I was trying to turn myself into a writer, and... It wasn't going so well in financial sense, so this past fall I took a job working for a company that was going to have me doing property surveys of properties in Detroit that were going into tax foreclosure. And um, for me, it was like a great way to see the city, to see the front lines of this interesting issue. And I knew I'm going to make some money and I'm going to have something to write about. Um, and the deal with tax foreclosure in Detroit is, if you get behind in your taxes. The city will uh, foreclose and then you can buy it back for $500, that's what I knew. And we had um, a little tablet, like an iPad, and they would send us out and on the thing is a map and it's filled with red squares. And all the red ones are the ones that I need to survey. And there are a lot of them because there's a lot of foreclosures in Detroit. So there I am on my bike up and down the streets, taking a picture and marking down the information about the building. Or not a building. Actually, a lot of them had nothing on them. They're vacant land, grown over. Hardly a whisper of the house that had been there before, except for maybe some concrete that's grown over, and then you know, oh, there maybe was a sidewalk or a driveway here. And those were kind of strange, um, but nothing too heavy. And then there were the abandoned houses, quite a few of those, actually, that had broken windows, and signs of lives that had been lived there once, maybe not so long ago. Often they had signs of fire damage and there would be tires dumped there, and those were pretty sad. So it was really nice to see all the beautiful homes, and I was proud as a Detroiter that we have still so many beautiful neighborhoods. You hear so much bad stuff about Detroit in the news, and no, there's so much going on here, and I just love to see the gardens and the way they painted their houses and the little kids' toys out on the front yard. And uh, I would take my pictures of those and answer the questions. And the thing about those houses, though, is that people live in them, and when they see a white girl with a piece of technology, like, entering information, they're like, what's going on? So (laughs) they would talk to me. And I was glad that they did because I started to learn what they knew and they knew what I knew. They would ask me, are you buying my house? No, 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 I'm just doing this because your property is in foreclosure. And time after time, I mean, they would disregard me with shock. I'm literally delivering this news to many people for the first time, and I'm a girl on a bike. I don't have the tools to help you through this. And I would answer the questions as best I could, which was not very well. And it was really weighing down on me. So I would go home at night and look it up online and try to find the inevitable questions that I'd have to answer the next day, and I would learn a little bit more. And it got to the point, now I'm giving them my phone number and email address and the website, and like trying to do something about it. But uh, it, it got to a point where I, just, I knew um, it wasn't enough. And, of course, I couldn't make a difference for most of these people, but I thought... Maybe I can make a difference for some. And there was one day I was biking away from this last home that something about it just was the straw that broke my back. And there was a word echoing in my head, and it was radicalized. And I didn't choose the word, but that's the one that was echoing in my head. And it doesn't mean, like, I'm going to join Che Guevara in the trenches or anything, but what it meant was I can no longer just talk about this. I can no longer just write about this. I'm going to have to do something. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I I started a fundraiser and was able to raise enough money to give $500 to 11 different families, the starting bid on their houses. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty great. Um... And the way that I chose the families that would receive the money was based on one criteria, which is that they had a tricycle in the front yard. Because those were the homes that, to me, I thought, if we can save these homes that are not just houses, but homes, and not just homes, but the homes of young children, then maybe this community will have a chance. And the auction came, it happens all online. A lot of the people I was working with they don't have internet access, and so I was often the one delivering the news, And it was horribly nerve-wracking and exciting. Um, and I was calling people up and telling grown men, you own that house that you paid a 20-year mortgage on, it's yours again, and they cried. And I told someone else, you, you got this house, you know, they had been renting it, now they're first-time homeowners, and they cried, and they called me an angel. And I felt like I have done something bigger than anything I'd ever done in my life, and it wasn't the hardest thing. Um, but it didn't work every time. Um two, three of the houses actually got outbid, and that's something that we always knew was a threat, like maybe there's someone sitting on a pile of money in New York or China, and they're like, hey, I hear Detroit's coming back, click, 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 and not knowing that they're changing the future forever for the people who live in those houses. And one of the women who lost her house was Miss Ruth, um, and I had to wait till I stopped crying to call Ruth. I was so afraid to tell her. And... She picked up the phone, she said, tell me some good news. And I said, I can't, Um, we lost your house. And she paused and she said, well, I guess that means I won't be needing that money. Is there another family that could use that $500? And I said, yes, of course, of course, there's so many more people. And basically in the moment that she found out that she was losing her home, she also became one of the biggest donors. And it was so moving. Her grace in handling that situation and uh, it is proof to me that just like those blighted buildings can bring down the whole block, so too can one strong person bring up the whole community and it's why I want to be working on this issue and I want to be more like Miss Ruth and it's why in addition to being a writer I'm also now an activist because all you have to do to be an activist is to take action. That was Michelle Oberholzer
1: in Detroit, Michigan. Michelle is a housing advocate for United Community Housing Coalition, where she leads the Tax Foreclosure Prevention Project. The nonprofit, the Tricycle Collective, is still going strong. After three years of operation, it's raised and donated over $50,000. The money helps Detroit families with young children save or buy the houses they already live in. Michelle is also a writer and singer. To see some photos from the Tricycle Collective, visit themoth.org. When we return, we'll visit one of the timeless dilemmas of domestic life, kids who desperately, desperately want pets. Also, a story of letting go and bonding during a 30-day silent retreat when the Moth Radio Hour continues.
3: The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. You're listening
1: to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. We're hearing stories about homes, fitting in, belonging, and this next story about a different sort of family. This is from a slam in New York City. Here is Flora Diaz. When I was growing up,
6: all I wanted was to discover that I was one of those kids who had, like, some special, magical, amazing connection with an animal, like... Maybe I would be buried in an you know avalanche in the Himalayas, and a dog would rescue me and it would be traumatic but bonding and and we would be inseparable after that, or maybe there would be like an orca who found my voice really trustworthy and um, it would get in some trouble, and I'd be called upon by the scientists to come help coax it out of trouble with with my voice or you know a bunch of birds that lost their sense of direction and needed me to guide them south or something like that, and I just knew that I was special and that I would have that connection, I just didn't know which was my soulmate animal until I was in sixth grade when I finally discovered um, that it was Drosophila melanogaster, the common fruit fly. <laughs> I discovered this in science class. We were doing a unit on Mendelian genetics. And we each got a jar of fruit flies that we got to breed for several weeks. And we had to uh, come into class and you know, count how many of them had red eyes and white eyes or no eyes, or uh, crooked wings, or straight wings, and keep it all, you know, in this little chart. And I was so excited about this. I felt like I got, you know, my very own set of pets at school. And I got so into it, and I took it so seriously. And at the end of the unit, our teacher, Mr. Benson, told us all to take our jars outside, and that it was so cold that um, the fruit flies would die instantly, and then we could move on to astronomy next week. <laughs> and I was like, What? I couldn't believe, I just felt like this was my, I knew them, I knew their parents, I knew their grandparents, I knew um, you know, their dominant traits, their recessive. I just felt like we were really intimate at that point. I could not imagine killing them. And nobody else in the class seemed to have any problem with this. They were just getting their jars and heading out to lunch. And I, I just felt like there was no time to think I had to stop this atrocity. And I ran around um, telling the other kids that I would take their jars for them, not to worry. And, you know, if themselves the trip, I'll do it for you. So I ended up with six jars of fruit flies. And I didn't know what the hell to do with them, but I knew I had to save them, and this was my calling. And I asked Mr. Benson for some plastic bags, and I lied and told him I was going to take them outside. He gave me plastic bags, and I, I went down the stairs, like the central stairwell of the high school, and, um, or the, the middle school, sorry. And I I didn't know what to do, but I saw that underneath the stairs, there was this little sort of triangle of space. Um, It was dark, and there was like a thick layer of dust on the floor, and like an old detergent bottle left there by a janitor or something. So I ducked in there with all the jars, and I set them up in this sort of half circle in front of me, and I opened all the lids. And I told them (laughs) that they were free, and... I took a piece of a pear out of my paper bag lunch and I sliced a piece and left it there for them and I I told them I'd come back for them tomorrow and the next day I just could barely even sit through my classes. I was so excited for the lunch bell to ring and I'd come down and check on my little buddies downstairs and and I did and sure enough there they were still like kind of hovering around their jars and nobody had seen them, and nobody had noticed and I gave them a piece of banana and the next day a piece of kiwi and then it was the weekend and I went home and the whole weekend, I, was, I just was fantasizing about my future with these guys. Like I was thinking, next week I'm gonna step it up. I'm gonna teach them some tricks. I'm gonna give them some names. And soon enough, people are gonna know that I'm like the cool fruit fly whisperer of Chicago. And then we were gonna be on like talk shows. And, and then by that point, they'd be really well-trained and they'd be like sitting neatly in a row on my shoulder. And like Letterman would ask us a question, and I would like say it to them in the language that only we understood, and then we'd have a little laugh just between us, and then I would, you know, translate for Letterman just so that he wouldn't feel left out, and then, um, and then everybody would, would know, and I would just be amazing. So I went to school on Monday, like, just so excited to see them and see how, you know, what had become of, become of them. And I had actually packed an extra clementine in my lunch because I thought they should have their own and not have to share the fruit with me at that point. And, um, I got to school and there was a tall man wearing an orange hazmat suit greeting me at the door who ushered me into the school with all the other students and there was like a whole team of men in orange hazmat suits with like gas tanks strapped to their back and they told us that there had been a mass infestation of fruit flies in the school cafeteria and the cafeteria was shut down for several days. <laughs> I thought I was going to jail. I was. So terrified. I had never done anything bad in my life. I had never even had a detention before, and here I was causing havoc. They sent a letter home to all the parents, telling us we had to bring packed lunches because there was no cafeteria for several days. I was like, "Oh my God, I am going to jail!" And I thought, I thought all the teachers knew. I thought they were all looking me, looking at me with these knowing looks, and the other students. Ooh, okay. And um, so um, after a few days, nobody said anything to me. And I realized, nobody knows it was me. Nobody suspects me. And as the fear subsided, it was replaced with this deep sense of betrayal that these little fuckers did this to me. I couldn't believe it. Like, all they had to do was stay put. I was giving them a life of luxury. We had big plans and they had to go and get themselves fumigated and get me in you know, potentially really big trouble. In fact, I didn't get in trouble at all. Mr. Benson got in trouble and they shut down the fruit fly program after that at my school, they never did it again. I went home and the one thing I would love to say that I learned some big moral about, you know, owning up to my mistakes and I didn't, I never told a soul. I went home and I wrote in my diary, honest to God, this is my diary entry from that week, February 18th, 1991. Remember, underline, underline, fruit flies, colon, not to be trusted.
1: That was Flora Diaz. The great fruit fly debacle took place in Chicago. And in case her science teacher, Mr. Benson, is listening, Flora would like to issue an official apology. Until maybe right now, nobody ever knew that Flora's big heart was the culprit. As for finding the perfect pet, a few years ago, Flora got a bearded dragon lizard. She named him Mr. Circles. She found pet love at last. Our final story is from John J. Reed. He told many, many stories at our New York City Story Slams and was always a crowd favorite. Here's John at a New York City Grand Slam at the Music
7: Hall of Williamsburg.
2: Holy cow, holy cow.
7: (laughs) I am sitting cross-legged on a royal blue cushion with my gaze lowered slightly, so I'm looking at a spot on the hardwood floor about three feet ahead of me. I'm surrounded by 40 other people all doing the same because we are five days into a 30-day silent meditation retreat. That means 30 days, no talking, computer, cell phone, television, nothing. Just us in our minds. And we're in a retreat center in very northern Vermont, 150 miles south of Montreal. And um, uh, we are practicing the Shambhala tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Now, what I love about Shambhala is that their primary tenant holds that at the foundation of all humanity is this, basic goodness. And I I just think it's beautiful, you know, and it's really very simple, although it doesn't quite make sense to me because so much of life really really does suck. You know, it really does suck. But it's beautiful. And so for from seven in the morning until nine at night, I am sitting meditating on basic goodness. And I gotta tell you, sitting with my mind for that it's like for that period of time. And I need a break. So I'll raise my gaze, look around at my fellow retreatants about whom I know nothing because we can't talk. But I, but I do know that one guy came down from Montreal because we had a sign-in sheet. And he, uh, he must be Quebecois because he has an impossibly impossibly French, uh, French name, something like Jean-Michel saint something crème brûlée, you know, it's like really crazy. <laughs> you know? So when my, I can't take my mind for one more second. I play Let's Find Frenchy, which is when I look around <laughs> for the person who has like the slightly, uh, you know, French-Canadian fashion. And I'm, I'm doing this on the fifth day when somebody walks up to me, leans over, and hands me a note that says, Call Jim with a number on it I don't recognize. And I sit on my cushion for two minutes. I mean, seriously, maybe three, trying to think of one person really close to me named Jim. And there just isn't one. There isn't. There isn't. So I get up, I walk out of the shrine room, I'm heading to the office thinking, How do I pantomime? You know, I don't know, the wrong retreating, somebody else. When it occurs to me, my brother Jimmy. <laughs> you know, you know. So so I I make the call and the first words I say in five days, first words I said to any of my three older brothers in over 15 years are these, did mom die? And uh, she had. So, um, so, So I meditate on the plane from Vermont back home to California where Eddie, my tent revival preaching evangelical brother, leads the service which he begins like this verbatim, Gene Reed was two things. She was a Christian, and she was a Republican, in that order, and it's like, oh, uh, you know, and then he goes, on, he, he, go, he goes on to admonish and chastise us for 10 minutes, and that's the sum total of my mom's funeral, although he makes a moment to look directly at me, and he goes, where do you think mom is, Nirvana? And it's like, geez, you know, but before I head to the airport, and I've been on the ground a total of 13 hours my three brothers form this semicircle around me and I feel myself regressing to my baby brother toe-headed state. You know, it's like this dense wall of meat is looming over me. Or a a wall of dense meat would be more accurate. And and Richie says, Johnny, if you don't change your ways, you're never gonna see mom again. And that's when I know they planned this. They want me to be absolutely certain that I understand that our mother has gone to heaven and if I don't stop being a fag, I won't. Now, I'm so startled and taken back that I can't think of anything to say. But when I get on the plane, I'm just overcome with rage. I'm so angry that they think it's okay to say this to me at my mother's funeral. And I'm angry at myself for thinking that just because it's my mother's funeral, they might treat me like a normal human being, like they would treat any other human being on the planet. But then I think she was my last tie to them. I can leave that garbage 3,000 miles away in California. Nobody ever gets to talk to me like that again. So I get back to Vermont, sit on my cushion, and lower my gaze, and for 23 more days I sit in absolute silence. And Although nobody knows what's going on because we can't talk, I feel this great comfort in being surrounded by these people. Now on the 30th day, we're allowed to start talking again. And uh, So we make these ad hoc circles in the shrine room, and I'm sitting with six other people, and this woman across from me says, hey, what happened to you? You like disappeared. And I said, yeah, my mom passed away, and I I flew to California for her. Funeral, right? Silence, right? Until the guy on my immediate left leans in, makes eye contact with me, and he says, congratulations. <laughs> now the temperature in the room drops, and I, <laughs> and I am making eye contact with him, so I can see that he's starting to panic. You know, he knows something. Something just went wrong, but he doesn't know what. <laughs> and, and that's when I get it. I found Frenchie. You know, (laughs) and and I and I know like that he meant to say condolences. You know, (laughs) but but you know I I have got to tell you that this guy who absolutely has no command of the English language (laughs) risked saying something at that intense moment. It just went, you know, it went right to my heart. I mean, it was so touching. But when I turned from him to the other people in the circle, they are horrified. (laughs) They're horrified, and they're horrified for me. They're concerned for me. They're wondering, how am I going to take this absurd thing this man just said to me? And their reaction is in such stark contrast to my brother's that I just can't help it, and I burst out laughing. You know, Inappropriate, wrong for the shrine room. You don't do that in the shrine room. But I can't help it. I can't get under control. It keeps coming and coming and coming, and then tears start flowing, and then they're not so much horrified. It's just like, really? really confused, you know, because they have no idea why this is so funny to me, but one by one they start laughing, and then we're all laughing, you know, and then everybody but Frenchie, who has no idea what the (laughs) hell is going on, you know, and then I look in his eyes and I see he's frightened. And then I realized he thinks we're laughing at him. And I don't want him to feel that. I don't want him to feel that. But I, you know, I can't talk because I'm laughing too loud. And I don't fucking speak French. And his English sucks, so I can't do anything. So I push him off his cushion. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I, you know, but he's lying there, he's lying there on the floor, and he starts laughing. And so I hoist him back up onto his cushion. And then there are seven of us all laughing. We're all in on the, on the joke. Seven complete strangers who are just like ridiculously intimate after these 30 days. And we're laughing and laughing and laughing. And I think, oh my god, I get it. I, I totally get it. I understand on a level I never thought I would that at the foundation of all humanity is basic goodness. Thank you.
1: That was John J. Reed. He was indeed a great believer in common goodness. The storytelling community in New York City was heartbroken when we learned that he passed away from heart failure at just 53 years of age. For 20 years, John was the director of client services at Friends Indeed, the crisis center for life-threatening illness, a job that suited his incredibly generous and open-hearted way of being and of listening. He often told heartbreaking stories and his emotions were always close to the surface. On the other side, he had a gorgeous baritone laugh, and he was not afraid to use it. He was greatly loved in this world by me and so many others, and will be missed. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the Moth.
3: Your host this hour was Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show. The rest of the Moth Directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Timothy Lou Lee. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Ben Harper, Paul Simon, RJD2, Pokey LaFarge, and Tom McDermott. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.